Hello, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Thanks for joining me. I'm board certified in holistic nutrition, also a functional nutritional therapy practitioner, and I run an online functional medicine practice where I help people that have been to, on average, five or more doctors, specialists, neurologists, chiropractors, gastroenterologists, naturopaths, other functional medicine people, and they struck out with those people. And now they've come to me to try and get a second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth opinion of their condition, of their symptoms or illness, and how we can help them through it. And usually we pull everyone out of the hole, assuming we do the proper labs and we get the proper data. If we're just guessing, obviously the results are less good. And so my whole philosophy is test, don't guess with your health. And that's why we love using these functional medicine labs that I now teach doctors how to implement into their practice. And we're converting a lot of conventional medical doctors into this more functional medicine model. So it's really, really exciting times in the health world. And we're helping a lot of people. Today's podcast is with Dr. Robert Whitfield. He's an MD. He's been a plastic surgeon for 26 years, board certified for over 16 years. He specializes in breast implant illness, breast implant removal surgery, and advanced cosmetic procedures such as his no-cut facelift. In addition to his exceptional work as a surgeon, he's a sought-after provider for his Holistic Accelerated Recovery Program, which helps to reduce systemic inflammation and assist patients who are both preparing or recovering from surgical procedures. So we're going to dive into this in just a minute. As you may know, I've covered breast implant illness before on the podcast. We talked to another doctor about breast implant illness and how a lot of these women also have mold toxicity that worsens their condition. So today you'll learn more about what, why, and how this is happening. Makes sense to me. You're putting a foreign object in your body. Of course it can make you sick. So I hope this helps you on your journey. One amazing update that I'm excited to share. I've been working very hard behind the scenes on a new program for specifically long haulers. So long haulers, meaning long haul COVID, meaning you had the virus or you had the injection, you feel like you never fully recovered from that. And you may have issues with chronic fatigue, depression, anxiety, shortness of breath, vertigo, blood pressure issues, sleep problems, hair loss, energy, libido, fertility, hormones, gut, kidney, you name it. This spike protein damages literally every part of the body. The research I've been doing for this has really blown me away. So I encourage you to check out the link. You can just go to evanbrand.com slash long, L-O-N-G. And that's going to be the URL for the opt-in page. This is a page where you'll get put on the wait list. I'll notify you as soon as the long haul course is ready to launch. Right now, we're still pushing through more research and more video recording content for that, but I hope to bring that to you as soon as possible. So definitely sign up for that. You're going to learn a lot about mold and how other roadblocks may be impairing your ability to fully recover from this thing. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast here. If you'd like to support the show, support your health and the mission, AuraRoots.com. That's A-U-R-A Roots.com. That is my professional supplement company in regards to detox support. So helping women through breast implant illness, what we're doing clinically, we're doing my microbiome support three. We're doing my grass-fed beef organs my liver gallbladder support, Detox Pro, which is the binder, 
passion for her, which is the women adrenal hormone libido support. And we'll also do some glutathione. Sometimes we'll do my enzyme, which is pure digest. And also the multi pro, which is a very, very high potency, high quality methylated multi. That's the multi pro. So that is the typical stack that we use. So we'll have the links for that stuff in the show notes. If you want to build your stack, build your protocol and start supporting yourself now. And if you need further help clinically, you can reach out. I see this stuff all the time. Obviously, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not going to cut the thing out of you, but I can help the body significantly. We've seen massive results clinically. So all that info and booking consults can happen at evanbrand.com. All right, Dr. Rob, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I discovered you online like everyone else does. And you know, I, I had seen breast implant illness clinically, but I hadn't found anyone like you that was actually specializing it and actually doing the hard labor that I'm not smart enough to do, which is the removal of these things. So can you give us the story? I'm sure there is one. You had a host 29 weeks ago. So I, I don't know how many you've done since then, but one of your Instagram posts, uh, May 7th, it said, as of that week, you had performed 1,000 498 breast implant removals. Yeah, we're a little over 1,800 now. Good Lord. And do you think it's an issue of increasing toxicity on the planet, why this is happening more? Or is it just a larger awareness of this issue? I mean, what the hell's going on? Because you didn't hear much about this a decade ago. Sure. So my background is in oncologic reconstruction, mostly in breast cancer, um, sarcoma, and head and neck. So um, when I started practice in the 05 uh, kind of time range, we would do reconstruction for breast cancer after mastectomy, either using a breast implant tissue expander and then convert it to a uh, implant that was permanent. Or my niche was to take the patient's own tissue and do a natural reconstruction of the breast mound using microsurgical technique. And that was called a DIEP preflap. And so those were very time intensive operations. So I really didn't have a, um, a significant amount of my practice time to devote to doing implant-based reconstruction because around the country, in the United States, at least in the communities that are say smaller than urban areas, we'll say under a million, even you know smaller, that would be the predominant technique used to perform a, a breast reconstruction after mastectomy because a plastic surgeon in that community, um, they would have the training to do that. And if you were trying to do what my niche was in microsurgery, you would need a lot more uh, resources in terms of the operating uh, room, just equipment and staffing, and then monitoring in the in the wards and the nursing staff and everything. So it, it was more of a, um, a medical center uh, type treatment. So that's why you'll have predominantly more women with uh, implant-based breast reconstruction after mastectomy. And then, of course, on the cosmetic side, there's two big bumps. One after, uh, we'll say, after the age 18, under 25. And then uh, if someone's done having children and they have had breast deflation or SAG or what have you, there'll be a bump then, and we'll say that's 35-ish. Um, so those are the, the predominant times you would see breast implants placed. And then... Is early in my experience, I've had people have trouble with capsular contracture because of the number of operations breast cancer patients have to go through. And I would tend up uh, removing those sometimes because patients were uncomfortable and they had uh, injury. 
from treatment or therapy, radiation therapy, et cetera. And so we would you know, remove them and that would give the patient relief sometimes from just the contracture itself. Um, I did have an occasion where I had a lady have a big histamine response where she was red chested. And then once I did her explant, that resolved. Now, that's probably my earliest kind of experience with what we're now going to say is, you know, breast implant illness, which for me is just a really end stage a problem with chronic inflammation. The device is one component of chronic inflammation. And your question was like, why now? Um, obviously, you know, I say you can't outrun a bad diet and you can't pick your parents. So you have a certain genetic uh, capability. Uh, so you have genes and then your phenotype is how they're being expressed. So genetically, people can only detox so much. And your point was like, is everything more toxic? Well, short answer is yes. So the food's worse, the air's worse, and the water's worse. So all those things taken into consideration will give you elevated toxicity with limited detox capability. And you have an advice, so your body just can't handle all that. So now I think it's just more, for lack of better uh, terms, we've tried to contribute as much to the understanding of the problem as we can. Like I said, I've done over 1,800 explants. I understand the genetics behind it, the food sensitivities that people have, especially to things like cruciferous vegetables, uh, impaired sulfur metabolism, um, hormonal imbalance. And then really, when you look at a vibrant wellness toxicity test, you'll see all the different mycotoxins that maybe they were exposed to. They may have a heavy metal exposure, which I've had patients have that. Um, things like triclosans, phthalates, uh, parabens, um, perchlorate, whatever. I mean, yes. So the short answer is it's a complicated uh, problem. And that's why from a provider side, it's very confusing. I think if you go to the GP and you're a female with uh, breast implants or having all these different symptoms, it really is hard for them to navigate. What does it all mean? You have brain fog and you have shortness of breath and you have arthralgias, you know, joint pain, muscle pain, GI problems. Like what they're like, what is this? This doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you just look at it in the terms of chronic inflammation versus acute. So acute is you go out of your studio, you step off the curb and you twist your ankle, your ankle swells up, your body sends out signals to uh, cause inflammation, which leads to uh, healing at some point, those signals are turned off. But in chronic inflammation, the signals are never turned off. So if the device and or other things, toxicity, you know, uh, poor detox from, you know, backed up liver or poor kidney function or a uh, bad diet, you know, it's just too much. And then you get the hallmark of, of, of basically chronic inflammation. Amazing. Uh, I know this is less popular, but I mean, people do get butt implants. I'm assuming any implant can create this kind of histamine response. Maybe it's masoactivation. Have you done any butt explants? You know, I have, but I've actually really narrowed my practice down. And so when you look at polymerase chain reaction, DNA analysis of explant specimens, so I take like a thumbnail portion and I send it to a lab and they run a panel of DNA fragments against it. That's a PCR test, just like during the pandemic, everybody, like you can have an antigen test, a PCR test. So that is a very specific test looking at 150 types of mycobacterium, fungus, and bacteria. The predominant bacteria is Cutibacterium acnes. So that's found in high concentrations on your face, neck, shoulders, and chest. And so that's why it's most commonly associated to me with um, breast implants. 
And then the butt implants obviously wouldn't have that because they're they're by your butt. So it'd be other things like you know near uh, you know the the rectum essentially. So I you know personally um, I have great friends who do wonderful jobs with butts, and I I let them take care of the butt for sure. Now, can you fix the patient that was sick with just using antifungals, or you're saying there's a microbial issue here? Because when I look at breast implant illness victims, these women, they come to me and say, hey, I'm suffering. I told you like we hit before we hit record, like on the organic acids, you'll see all these elevated fungal metabolites. Now, a lot of times we'll see bacterial overgrowth too, and they have all these gut issues. So a lot of times I'm combining antimicrobial antifungal herbs. I'm just wondering clinically, are you seeing it a fungal majority? Is it a bacterial majority? Is it both every time? What are you seeing? So only about five out of a thousand for fungal, predominantly bacterial, overwhelmingly bacterial. So what you're seeing is the fungal exposure people are getting. So say for instance, uh, someone comes in from uh, the Gulf or from the coast to me. It's not my job to prove that you don't have job. It's your job as a patient to prove to me that you don't have all, because I assume you have it. And yeah. if you have an impaired glutathionation you know, pathway, then you're going to have more trouble dealing with mold. I think that's, that's pretty common in my patient population. People typically have problems with impaired vitamin D synthesis and absorption, methylation, glutathionation, and uh, antioxidant pathways. Okay. So you're saying these people probably just had pre-existing mold exposure. They were already sick with mold and then the breast implants just made them worse. Either or you have a device and then you get a mold exposure. Typically you can have mold exposures as a kid, obviously. I mean, I live in Texas. Everybody's been exposed to mold here. So yeah, common problem here. Um, it should be thought of, it's very common in Hawaii. It's very common in California. I mean, uh, in any, you know, uh, any, any place in California, I mean, you look at it, they're super old. They're on the coast. I mean, the mold's growing on the wall. I mean, I don't think it's that hard to put two and two together for those things. Yeah. Now, I see some of the protocol stuff you put together, like an inflammation support bundle. These are things I use also. So like a liposomal glutathione, liposomal DNK, uh, the calcium D-glucarate, carnitine, liposomal B-complex, magnesium, liposomal C. Do you feel like that people can make a full recovery with just supporting all the pathways like that after, or are there other things you do post explant? Yeah. So the formulations, I switched to predominantly liposomal where I can. So we avoid pill fatigue and we have a lot of impaired malabsorption uh, issues with our patients, uh, particularly ones who are exposed to mold. So that's, you know, one tactic to help them get micronutrients and, and what they need right now. Um, I think in terms of the whole combination is get them started on the correct dietary changes, cut out gluten, you know, cut out dairy, look at their food sensitivities, um, then provide supplements that we know from looking at genetic reports on these patients will really help augment their pathways that, you know, trying to make it more efficient for them will be helpful. And then, you know, coupled to surgery and actually removal that gives them a pathway to wellness because you know once you're taking care of them you'll see that it's very hard to correct the problem with the device in place especially if they have limited detox capability from just genetics now there's a bunch of people who uh, have a breast implant who do fine but if you just looked at their genetics you would know why because they don't have problems with impaired 
vitamin D synthesis or absorption, or they don't have trouble methylating, or they have a very effective uh, GSTP1 pathway or something like that, and their antioxidant pathway works just fine. So you're not going to become burdened because their ability to detox is much higher than their load, right? We're just like the bucket's full and you get one more exposure to your point, And that's, that's when you get a patient who becomes, you know, sick. I see people all the time with, um, they were doing fine and then something happened, you know, a move, a reno, uh, vacation, you know, some stressor in life, wh- whatever. And that's just enough to, you know, tip them over the edge. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, we have a good friend who same thing. She had implants. Luckily, she got them out now, but it was just a lot of family stress. And then all of a sudden, boom, she had them in for years. Everything was fine until the husband got deployed. She's lonely. She's stressed about it, raising kids on her own. And then boom, got sick from the implants. Got them out, felt way better. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I see you sell some spore-based probiotics as well. Now, are you doing any kind of antimicrobial protocol though? Are you implementing either herbal or prescription antibiotics to treat like this bacterial issue after you explant, or you're just thinking you increase the body's capabilities and that's unnecessary. We're more reliant on the body. And at the time of explant, we go ahead and use a dilute acidic solution to lower the pH in the pocket to sterilize the pocket. Um, I don't proactively put anybody on antibiotics ever because you don't know what you're treating and you're just going to cause more microbiome issues. So we don't do that. Um, if we had a suspicion after surgery or if someone developed a issue, then we would just treat that in a, as a one-to-one, you know, situation. We would, we don't have a program that runs antibiotics after surgery at all. We're more okay. about on reset and we use uh, cell core for detox. Okay. Love it. And so when you run these mycotoxin profiles on people, you're thinking that that's just life exposure. You're thinking that's not from the implants, right? That's not. Okay. Now, I have plenty of evidence to show it's not from implants. Amazing. Okay. And when you go and put an implant in, well, I've seen these photos. The body's creating this capsule as a protective mechanism, right? Is that just trying to separate itself from the immune system? Is that what's happening? Every device that's put in, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, any piece of hardware for an injury, uh, a knee implant, a hip implant, a breast implant, a defibrillator. Uh, it doesn't matter. Neural stimulator. They all develop a capsule because your body sees it and recognizes it and goes, whoa, this is foreign. So it creates a response around it. And your body's just responding by creating and trying to wall it off and get it out of your system. But, you know, unfortunately, things where we get exposed to uh, bacterial uh, or fungal contaminants from whatever reason, you know, somebody could get a cold, somebody could have a urinary tract infection. Um, they could have uh, a colonoscopy and get a biopsy. These bacteria shower the bloodstream, and so you get hematogenous or blood-borne bacteria. And those, if they get onto a device, uh, you know, heart valves, the classic example, people could get endocarditis. So it's you know basically none of this is new. This has been going on forever. So I, I, I feel somewhat when I talk about this, that's the most common way someone gets a biofilm, which is a a bacterial, typically bacterial contaminant on their device. Okay. Yeah. That was the next question. Do you use biofilm busters at all? Are you using natokinase or serapeptidase, other like systemic enzymes during this process or after? And in my experience, after surgery, 
they're in a in a particularly sensitive state. So we try to continue on with reducing inflammation and then put them through whatever detoxification protocol works based on their their you know information, the data we collected. And then on a case by case, we add uh, natazymes, serozymes, what, whatever we need to add, you know, for that particular patient. I don't, I don't try to globally put everybody on that after surgery. Sure. Okay. What about uh, fertility issues? I mean, have you seen women that are having miscarriages, fertility, any issues with the offspring while they had implants? Do you think that's related? So we don't have data on, you know, what uh, the offspring are experiencing, but I, I know there's fertility issues. And so I would just, you know, for not a lack of not, you know, trying to get like into a point where somebody's going to, you know, throw too many darts at us, but inflammation creates the problems that we're describing. So uh, it doesn't matter what it is. So if we just look at the continuum of inflammation and you have more and more inflammation in your system, your hormones are definitely going to get thrown off by that. The most common hormone we see affected first is the thyroid. I think most people would agree with that. And so, you know, people are like, oh, you know, they put me on thyroid medication. I'm like, well, can you tell the difference? And they're like, no. So as soon as I actually do their explant, I tell everybody the same things. I'm like, okay, you're going to have to pay particular attention to your thyroid medication. And I use that as an example because to me, the thyroid is the most sensitive. If you're on a synthetic thyroid medication and we do your explant, if your inflammation is super high and it's, it's not a, we don't have a perfect test to tell you like how high is too high. People can experience basically a thyroid storm after surgery, because now think of the bioavailability of the medication is much higher than it had been because they had so much inflammation going on. So, and I know that, you know, that's probably hard for most people to understand, but I see it routinely when people get, you know, a response like that. I'm like, you have to be careful with thyroid, especially not so much with like armor or something like that, but I'm a synthetic thyroid medication. Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, the gut's probably improving better too. We see that where all of a sudden they have to lower their dose a little bit after working on the gut. Right. Now so they're overdosing. Up and then now you're seeing like the medicine works, obviously. It's like when someone tells me testosterone doesn't work. I'm like, really? Do you think all the athletes, male and female around the world, jeopardize their entire careers, their legacies, their money, their medals because drugs don't work? No. Drugs work just fine. You either don't have the right dose or you don't have the right drug or both. Yeah. Okay. So women are thinking, okay, what is the alternative? You had a post in April about this. You say that in many cases, women who have breast implants removed, they could greatly benefit from a breast lift. You call this a mastopexy. Is that pronounced correct? Yeah. There's a few things that we want to do because obviously uh, the initial indication in many instances predominantly was to improve the aesthetics of the breast, either too small or they were sagging or, or, or something. So if I'm taking out a, a device with the caps around it, we want to do it intact. Then we want to provide reshaping and lifting of the breast if that's indicated. So wide breast, you want to narrow. And then a breast that's got too much excess skin, you want to reduce the skin and tighten the skin. And then what I do try to do, if we're looking at a, a, a size situation, that's going to be a big change. We try to add the own patient, their own fat back to that. And that's called a fat transfer. So those are predominantly what we're looking at in each case. Obviously, you know, we individualize a treatment plan for them to help them either reshape and lift or add volume back or do all the. 
Do you do you find that women sometimes their breasts just naturally come back on their own after they've passed childbearing, they've passed breastfeeding? I mean, in my wife personally, I mean, I see they're getting back to normal before like the pre-kid level. I mean, they're not totally pre-kid, but they're starting to improve on their own. Well, they're stretching. So there's always three components and it's the skin, the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the tissue layer, if you will, and the nipple complex. And like, how are those all working together? Now, the changes that you'll see commonly when someone loses or gains weight don't have to do, any, do anything, uh, don't have anything to do with the breast tissue. It's the fatty layer. And as we get older, our fatty layer gets thicker, not thinner, right? We'll take away the fact that people are using peptides like Ozempic and, and, uh, the Ogabi and all these other things right now. So typically our fatty layer gets bigger. So that's why breast will, you know, I, I, and I try to let people know, like if it's metabolically happening as you're getting older, where, you know, hormones and our metabolism, you know, they're slowing down and we're, we're putting on weight. Typically it's usually in the fatty layer barring, you know, inflammation and fluid retention. So that's why I like, your your wife will have a you know not enhancement but you know a, it'll return to a resting state typically but when people get super deflated and things like that that's not so much the breast layer but that was the fatty layer wow yeah i mean because post breastfeeding i mean it's just they're just gone you know it's just like deflated balloons it's crazy how much it can change but then it's you know almost two years post breastfeeding, it's like, okay, they're starting to return to like a pre-pregnancy state. Yeah. So things are more, you know, going to be normalized. The problem is no one's terribly patient during that process. And if it's an explant, then there can be a lot of just such a stark visual change that's really bothersome and concerning. So I try to make sure that we have all of these different options available, but we're super, uh, you know, locked in on making sure that when we're doing these, we're looking at toxicity issues and dietary issues and balance of hormones. And we're trying to make sure that we are helping the patient so that in the end game, we're, you know, going to get them to a level of wellness that's, you know, best for each of them. So this may be a silly question, but do you put in implants anymore? I haven't for about three plus years. The thing that I did predominantly, like I said, when I, when I was doing breast cancer reconstruction, I had to solve a lot of problems that were related to cancer. So if an implant had a capsular contracture or malposition or a radiation injury over the tissues, we had to solve for that. So I developed, like many reconstructive surgeons, a lot of ways to solve implant-based issues. And then basically, as I got further on in my career, I never really did uh, a bunch of implant uh, cases. It just wasn't my niche. The, the thing I did was resolve problems. So if your wife had had implants and she had a capture contracture or a position problem or something like that, she would find me because I did revisions and then I would help correct it. Now, all of those in the end game develop problems. So finally, I just got tired of taking care of everybody's problems and just stopped doing them. And I just do explants and do the holistic transformations with their own tissue and their fatty tissue and like you said, uh, skin lifts and breast lifts and, you know, reductions of areolas that are stretched out. So all the things that we can do in a natural way, we, we, we help them. Cool. 
All right. Well done. Yeah. And I saw photos too of thermography. So you've used thermography as well to kind of look for this and try to prove this on paper. Is that right? You'll take a woman and do a thermograph and say, okay, we see inflammation here. Like you're a good candidate or most of these women pretty convinced already. And you just go straight for it. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we see a lot of visual evidence of that on thermography. We see a lot of it on laboratory analysis and then broadly looking at it with how they detox, what exposures they may or may not have had their food sensitivities, their hormonal imbalances, their GI maps. I mean, it's more of a collective rather than an individual. Uh, we also do a lot with hyperbaric oxygen therapy in the office and lymphatic massage. Cool. Okay. Yeah. I love the GI map. I've run more of those than almost anybody in the US. Now that bacteria you said though, that primarily is found, that's not tested on the GI map, right? It's not. And we don't do biome effects. It's, it's a bit too much for this. We're trying to get it turned around so we can make as much impact as quickly as possible we want to get all of this turned around and you know you know those those studies sometimes can take you know three to eight weeks you know if you just listen to what i said that's a lot of information to turn around get results get uh we have a practitioner a detox pressure practitioner on my staff now because i can't i don't have enough time to do it myself anymore so it's still a lot to turn around and get on you know, a call and set up a plan and get started on a plan and help them prior to surgery, then have surgery, then, you know, get back into the plan once surgery and its recovery has gone to a point where you can do that. Is what would be the, the one go-to test? I mean, I know you could do organic acids, you could do mycotoxin, you could do the chemical profiles. If you have a woman who's like, Hey, feel terrible, have implants, like to look into this. What, if you could only use one test, what would you choose? Uh, I know most that are genetics now by just listening. So I would yeah. do their to me. Say, say that one more time. Tox test, the total tox. Um, total tox, okay. Picture of like what, you know, potential exposure there are. And it's not anything you can listen to and know in my experience. I mean, I can't tell you that your wife had a triclosan exposure because she used the organic wet wipe that had it in, she absorbed it. So, and neither could anybody else is, is you know, it's, as, as much as I've seen and as much as I know, every time I get one of those tests and there's some other like unusual finding, I'm like, I, I would have never came up with this. I mean, it's just, it's not possible. So that uh, it's, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. I see it in kids too, kids that are just off the charts with stuff. Now, if you were choosing just the tox test, are you saying that just because the clue of say xylene and benzene and gasoline additives and car exhaust and all this stuff, you're using that data to show how poorly they detox? Is that why you would pick that one? I think it helps on the back end. So if someone comes in and they're not doing, you know, great at 90 days or great at six months or what have you. And say they chose like, all right, I don't want to do, you know, detox. I'm just going to look, I'm just going to see what happens. I'll have, you know, people do that. But if you come in and you're super symptomatic after, you know, two, three months, I just pull that test up. I'm like, well, you know, these are things just like you, you mentioned, like somebody may have been in the military and had jet fuel around them all the time. I mean, that's a neurologic disruptor. So, you know, do you still have brain fog? Yeah. I mean, do you not feel well? Yeah. Because it affects your hormones and your neuroendocrine system. So I think, you know, my, my point is like just doing explants alone is not going to resolve the kind of multi-layered issue that you're experiencing with chronic inflammation. So if you don't know the drivers, I don't really know where you're going to go at the end. 
Understood. So when you're talking 90 days, six months, you're saying post explant, if you're checking in, they still feel like garbage. Okay. Amazing. Well, anything else you think people should know about implants? It sounds like you shouldn't need them. They could possibly be avoided by doing some of this fat transfer technique, some of the lifting you're describing, some of the skin tightening you're describing. Well, I think it, you know, everybody asks me like, oh, would you let your daughter get you know, breast implants. I have a 15 year old daughter. You know, I'll just say it this way. So, uh, I would tell her exactly, you know, what I understand about her genetics. Cause I know her genetics. So even if I didn't, I would say, look, these are the things that say you had to get a knee replacement or hip replacement, or, you know, uh, you had breast cancer and you had to have mastectomies and a reconstruction. These are the consideration. So the, the problem is not that, you know, are they, or do they not serve a purpose? Because yeah, they're going to be continued use of, of devices. I mean, knees, hips, breast implants are going to get continued to be used. It's it's more about like just having the discussion. These are the risks and benefits. This is what you can anticipate, and this is what to pay attention for. I think that's all patients really want to know, and they can make their their informed decision with you. You know, it's just you know. When someone makes a request of me to explain this to them, it's incumbent on me to do it to the best of my ability. And I have a lot of information to be able to explain it in a way that helps them make a better decision. Yeah. Well said. Okay. I know this isn't your specialty, but I want to ask about it because uh, who else has as much experience as you in this? Not many. The question of knee implants. So you're saying that someone could literally have like a knee implant illness as well? Uh, chronic infections with hips and knees is this old as been around. I mean, any implant, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. There's, there's plenty of examples in the literature about this same bacteria, Cutibacterium acnes infecting like shoulder implants. And so um, I think biofilm, if you just want to generically say biofilm, biofilm, and for the sake of this discussion is basically bacterial contaminants around a device. And I've seen it on, you know, blood vessel graphs, hip implants, knee implants, breast implants. I don't do dentistry, but I used to repair broken jaws. It can happen there. Um, uh, I've taken out infected neurologic stuff, spinal hardware, whatever. I mean, I've helped everybody take care of these types of problems. So if you're putting something in that's not yours, it's got a chance to become infected. Um, it's higher than obviously if you're doing your own tissue because it's not your DNA, you know, it's not your genetic material. So I think we just have to accept, like, if you're doing these things, there's a risk that goes along with it. And, yeah. and so you need hips and knees and breast implants and dental implants, neurologic implants. They just need to understand the risk so they can, you know, make an informed decision. And th there's not a lot of, you know, situations. I did cancer reconstruction where people were going to lose a limb or they're going to, you know, potentially, uh, go flat if, and, and that was fine if that was their choice. So those are all the decisions. These are not easy decisions people make. Yeah. So like if you're 75, you've already had the knee replacement, you're just trying to improve quality of life. I mean, I wonder if just keeping someone on or rotating in like some herbal antimicrobials that aren't going to really damage the microbiome in the same way antibiotics would. I wonder if that'd be a, a good strategy because it sounds like over time, systemically, these people are somewhat getting poisoned by these endotoxins produced by these bacteria, right? They're walking around with this load of bacteria around this knee, for example. Isn't that going to weaken them over time? It's about 30% of the patients I've taken care of with uh, breast implants have had a biofilm. 
So that's one, you know, roughly one third. It's not everybody. And, you know, there's not just this perfect way to analyze that from a lab test to tell you. So I look at that broad picture, like I said, and we have a, a urine metabolite test for thrombox NA2 uh, that came out of the pandemic. We have uh, the other aforementioned, you know, a GI map, uh, a food sensitivity test. You know, you're looking at hormones, you're looking at a tox test that's urine based, and you're looking at their genetics. I mean, that's that's a non-allopathic way to look at this problem, except for hormones. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm thinking, if you're hearing this, you're like, well, crap, I can't get my my knee replacement out. Like I've already done it. I've got this implant in the knee. I don't want to cut my leg off. I don't want to go on crutches or something crazy. What do I do? You know, it sounds like you're saying just build up the host, try to increase the resilience of the host. If you have to keep something in like a knee implant, right? I mean, you can't just pop that out and do something different. Can you? Try to augment their basically immune system by vitamin D synthesis and absorption, methylation, glutathione, and uh, antioxidants. So that's why the inflammation support bundle is basically based on genetic results. It's not, I didn't sit down with you at a bar someday and just like randomly come up with that. So that's to help with that. And then they would need uh, yourself or another holistic provider to help with any kind of herbs or anything else specific to help augment that strategy. But those are the things, you know, from a bio, you know, biochemistry standpoint that would help you. And then yeah. anything helps the gut brain access or the gall, which is your gut associated lymphatic tissue. Any anything that will help that system is going to help you long term as well as lymphatic drainage and eating a proper diet and just lowering baseline inflammation with better air quality, water quality, food quality. Love it. Okay. How about stem cells? I mean, can you get the stuff you need? I mean, you always hear people discuss stem cells and they say, well, you can't get the good stuff in America. You got to go to Mexico or whatever. What what can you access? And then what actually works or how do you implement that? Yeah, we do same day uh, stem cell therapy with adipose-derived stem cells from fat. We take fat and we have a device to uh, go ahead and curate the cells from. So that works. There's other technology called V-cell, which is uh, more uh, embryonic stem cell therapy that comes from blood. You activate with a laser, but you're talking about the others where you have to go down uh, out of the country because it's not approved in this country uh, to be used. So I, I think over time, we're going to do, um, you know, our country's a bit slower for good reason about these therapies. Um, I think, you know, I'm comfortable with any adipose-derived stem cell therapy. That was my research when I was in uh, teaching, and I've done thousands of fat transfers. It's, it's you know, that's what I do. I'm, I kind of move fat around, and I take care of the skin, and that's my, you know, domain, essentially. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. So these are also called MSCs. Mesenchymal stem cells. Yeah. Mesenchymal stem cells. Okay. And these are from your fat. And then where do you put those and how do you implement those clinically? Yeah. So you can give them back IV or you can give them back topically or aerosolized. I have a facelifting technique where it's called the no cut facelift, where we use a device that removes skin without take and leaving a scar. And we topically apply it at the end of the treatment. So, um, with that technique, when you use, uh, used by us, we can use, uh, it to remove about one to one and a half inches of skin from your face at one time without any visible scar. Wow. Do you use stem cells personally? Cool. Is that a, did you have an injury type thing? Is it a anti-aging or 25 years? Say that again. 
operating for over 25 years. It's more of just uh, the wear and tear on my body. So. Yeah, understood. How about peptides? Do you use or implement peptides at all? Wow, I've used to just about everyone available. I always try to make sure I have a complete understanding of something before I recommend it to someone like yourself, your wife. Uh, so um, prior to things being pulled, we used a lot of BPC-157, um, but we have, um, I think from a user standpoint, I'm just, I try to be a little bit more selective and concentrate on those baseline uh, elements that we discuss with nutrition, supplementation, water quality, air quality prior to making a leap to peptides, because the more you ask someone to do, the 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 lower the compliance. So I try to keep it straightforward. But we have availability for things. And in our patient population, if I have somebody who goes through explant, still has, you know, weight issues or something like that, we can microdose semiglutide. You know, we're very familiar with GPL1 inhibitors in our practice. So it's more about tailoring it for the specific person. I don't have a big funnel that drops everybody in to just do that program because our, our niche is so specific. We're just trying to make sure that we get patients of ours to the, you know, their version of wellness, whatever that looks like for them so they can feel the best and go out and, you know, just, you know, be productive with themselves, their families, their friends, and live the highest quality of life they can. Agreed. Okay. And this is a little geeky, but people that have listened to the end, they're probably a little more geeky. So what about TB500? Do you know anything? Have you used it? Any benefits you've seen? Okay. Or TB4. You'll see it as TB4 sometime, the thymus and beta-4. You know, they, uh, so the other uh, thymusins, they pulled several of them uh, from us and I, we haven't revisited those when they were pulled. Um, I try to always, if we can, make sure that we're like, um, at least from an information, you know, basis, trying to analyze it and provide the best information to the client. So I, I try to make sure I have experience first and then the team does so that we can just provide feedback and make sure there's not going to be, you know, some kind of, you know, experience issue for them that, that we couldn't guide them on best. So I don't have with that enough experience to comment. No problem at all. All right. Well, we have your website, breast implant illnessexpert.com, drrobsolutions.com. Any other things you want to leave us with, tell us with, wisdom, uh, pep talk, anything else we should hear? Well, I, I think, you know, as well as our YouTube channel, Breast Implant Illness Expert, we're, we're just trying to provide quality information. So I'm not into uh, fear-mongering, which happens on a lot of social media sites and in the internet in general with a lot of negative experiences. I feel like this is a we've provided a very logical, well thought out approach to a very complicated problem. And it's taken me about seven plus years to figure out what I do right now. And we're always trying to improve it. I have a book coming out next year about our surgical recovery program. And so that will help patients who can't access us. We run our detox programs for patients who can't have surgery here. So that can be ran remotely to help them. And we have a lot of experience because we find patients who detox too quickly, get Herx types reactions and and we know how to do that effectively. So we don't want to have patients experience that problem. So they can come visit us for that as well through my heart program. Awesome. Uh, ballpark price to get explants out. Oh, ballpark price. I think uh, it's going to be, uh, it depends on how long you stay, around 20. 20,000. Okay. And how long you stay, meaning the pre-care, detox, support, post-care? 
I have people stay in Austin about a week um, just because I have a per, you know, there's not many offices like mine that have a lymphatic masseuse, the German lymphatic device balancer pro, a hyperbaric oxygen therapy uh, chamber, uh, you know, IV therapy, uh, you know, I don't know who else has all that to provide that in the time after surgery. Um, it just makes it easier if you're here. So a lot of people want to get, you know, home as quickly as you can, but then they'll, you know, ring us up. Oh, you know, I can't find uh, a lymphatic person who's trained or, or I can't access the lymphatic device or there's nobody with a hyperbaric or that I need a prescription or there's all this stuff. I have a vertical chamber so people just sit in it. They don't have to crawl in it. So, I mean, there's a lot of thought put into what we have and what we've curated. Um, a lot of patients... You know, I try to make it easy if they're bringing a, uh, a caregiver, uh, we have non-invasive skin tightening. So we'll have them get a soft wave treatment or a facial or something. We try to make it as easy as possible. I know it's hard to just come and hang out, but um, I feel like if surgery goes well, which in my hands, it, it does predominantly go well, a lot of experience. It's really the aftercare process. As long as it started and gets off to the right, uh, I like to say cadence a lot. But from our program, if you get started on the right track, we don't have a lot of people fall out and become outliers. So, you know, you're going to go on if you can keep your diet on point and you can, you know, from a, a protein perspective. So I'm a big, you know, dietary protein person. So my patients who have the most difficult time are, are vegans because they don't typically take in a lot of protein. So like our protein, our office is all pea based, which you know doesn't taste great, but it's vegan. Um, you can have shakes and our supplements are here, but like once you get home, you got to keep that up and people just fall out from, they go back to the routine, which is not really about self-care. It's about, you know, it's just about get through the day. What do I got to do to, you know, take care of the house, the, the kids, the dogs, whatever, whatever the, you know, the work schedule is. Um, that's why I like, if you spend enough time here, um, I feel like I'll have you in a good situation when you go home. I love it. No, I'm totally in agreement. I used to live in Austin a decade ago. So if I get back down there, I'll come shake your hand. Maybe we could record a video in uh, in office sometime. That'd be great. Everybody comes there. Everybody's, you know, you're one of the few people left. <laughs> yep. I know. I'm, well, I was there 2013 and 2015. I left. It was already getting crazy in 2015. So I can't imagine what it's like now almost a decade later. It's quite a bit different. <laughs> Gosh. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Get back to it. Thank you so much. You're listening to Dr. Robert Whitfield, and this is Evan Brand signing out. Thank you all so much. Take care. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you need further help clinically, one-on-one -on -one to recover your health, talk about your symptoms, your case, see if you need to get some functional medicine labs run so we can investigate and get you better, please do so at my site, evanbrand.com. In regards to professional supplements, AuraRoots.com has everything. My kids have been loving and begging me every single day for my grass-fed beef protein, which we get from Sweden. It is two pounds of goodness in a giant tub. That is the carnivore collagen. The chocolate is incredible. We use filtered water, filtered ice, a scoop and a half of that, blend it up real quick, and my goodness, you have a healthy frosty. 
If you've ever been to Wendy's, the fast food chain, you got one of those chocolate frosties. It's like anti-foaming agents and high fructose corn syrup. This blows it out of the water, obviously, and nutritional density, but it kind of tastes like that, like a healthy frosty. So if you're looking for a good, easy to digest, easy to assimilate and absorb, you're looking to build muscle, you're looking to burn fat, you're looking to stabilize your blood sugar and provide yourself with the most nutrient-dense food you can, the carnivore collagen is your ticket. So check it out. The other products mentioned in the beginning, like the Passion for Her, that is a great hormone support for females. If you want a better sex drive, better energy, better mood, that's a game changer. The Detox Pro is the binder that works magic. All of it is great. It's all professional quality. That's at AuraRoots.com. So thanks so much for checking it out. And I'll talk with you again real soon.